to episode 107 of Real Life Ghost Stories. How you do? To kick things off this week, we need to thank our newest Patreon subscribers. We would like to thank Heather Moylet, Jean Baker, Sarah Knight, Laura Oten, JJ Christensen, Krista Lombardi, Catherine Duncan, Sean Todd, Tremaine Darnell, Sophie Carlo, Caitlin, Julie Kay, Rachel Freeze, Martin Quinn, Noodleblatt, Julia Bivens, Lilith, Key Anderson, Jacqueline, Angelic Stain, Sarah Hines, Kat, Finn High, Bonnie Samanago, Sally Earls, Judy Williams. Thank you so much for being our Patreon subscribers. We appreciate you every day. We sure do. Thank you very much. We would also like to say a massive happy birthday to Emma. And not me. <laughs> not me in the third person. It's not my birthday. So, you know, happy birthday, Emma. We love you. Thank you for supporting us all this time. We appreciate it massively. Happy birthday to you. And our film review this week. Our film review is Ghosts of War. Ghosts of War was released in 2020. It has 5.4 out of 10 on IMDb and 38% on Rotten Tomatoes. Would you like a synopsis? Yes, please. Five battle-hardened American soldiers are assigned to hold a French chateau near the end of World War II. However, they encounter a supernatural enemy far more terrifying than anything seen on the battlefield. Going to give a warning before we do this review. It will contain spoilers and big spoilers. It will actually ruin the film if you haven't seen it. So please skip forward to about 10 minutes if you haven't seen the film and you desperately want to watch it. Dan, (laughs) what were your thoughts on this film? Uh, I've had a little bit of time to think about it. And calm down. And calm down. It wasn't a terrible film, so I'm not angry because it's open house levels of bad. I didn't think it was that bad. You're not angry, you're just disappointed. Disappointed, yeah. I feel like this film is broken up into two very distinct acts. No, three, it's probably three acts really, but the first two where it's all normal World War II spooky stuff. It was good, not executed brilliantly, but I could see what they were trying to do. I appreciated it for what it was. And then they decided to be too clever for their own good in the final act. And it ruined the whole thing for me because I just thought it was terribly, terribly misguided. Yeah, I agree. So the first the first act, say, it was the, it was a very predictable haunted house story. As in, the, you knew when a jump scare was coming. You kind of knew what it was going to be. They were in this big French chateau. They knew that the family of the people in the chateau had been murdered or they found that out while they were there and there was quite you know freaky stuff was happening in the chateau and it wasn't that bad it, it was definitely a three-star film you know what I mean it was it was it was kind of interesting to watch you obviously had the added trauma of the fact that they were all in a war situation and a very horrific war situation however they just lost it they lost it in they lost they completely lost it in the end of the film and you very cleverly predicted what was going to happen i just felt it was too simple for for what they were doing with the haunted house bit at the first point when it was in world war Two, and then i realized as it was going on that they were trying to do something clever in inverted commas with it and i figured out what it was because it wasn't actually that clever the biggest problem i have with this and i realized what this was after we finished watching it is that the whole simulated ptsd trauma program that they're in to get them over the, what happened to them in Afghanistan and the story itself ends up making the innocent Muslim family that was slaughtered the bad guys and I think that's terribly misguided 
I'd like to think that's not what they meant to do. No, absolutely, they didn't mean to do it, but that's that's what it is, essentially, isn't it? So, and, and Dan got incredibly annoyed while we were watching this. I really, we really should film us watching the films for reactions like this. I do think there is a place in cinema to explore the atrocities of war and what it does to soldiers, right? And I think PTSD is horrific, and absolutely must be horrendous for those that experience it. This was not it, though. No, absolutely. This not. was not it, and I don't understand. The logic behind, in order to allow soldiers to overcome your PTSD, you throw them into a horrific World War simulation, World War Two simulation, to allow them to overcome their PTSD. That doesn't make any no, sense. No, it doesn't make any sense at all. And it was, it's just them trying to be too clever. It would have worked wonderfully as a World War Two horror movie, worked in with some kind of PTSD explanation. It's not my favourite way of doing horror movies, but it works why we had to jump generations and do this whole mystical thing and then throw in a curse. I don't get it. It was like they started the film without fully hashing out what the idea was going to be. And then they got to the end and were like, oh shit, we, we've we've been, you know, the, the film is already two hours long. We need to wrap it up. And they just then ended it. And like you said, you end up with this bizarre narrative that this innocent Muslim family are the bad guys and it just, it was, it, I don't know, I found it really disappointing in the end. It would have been, like I said, it would have been a solid, scary, haunted house film set in wartime with these battle-hardened soldiers who are trying to navigate, you know, supernatural horror as well as the trauma of war, right? That would have been fine. It would have been a fine film. Yep. End of it. I'm not sure these Fuck people it. could have done it good, but it would have been fine. <laughs> I don't. I don't have faith in this team from what I saw before I worked out what it was. Don't have faith that they've been able to have done it well, but it would have been better than what it ended up being. Yeah, and I don't want this to—I don't want this to sound like I'm just being PC because they were a Muslim family either. It was the fact that the whole narrative was that this family, in World War Two, and then later on in Afghanistan, had been slaughtered for no reason. They were innocent. Someone had come in and slaughtered them. Without the religious aspect, the story still would have turned it on its head and made that innocent family the bad guys for putting a curse on them. That's what he was saying. He didn't mean to do that, but that's yeah. how it came out feeling. And I think that was misguided at best. Yeah. It just was a very, and I, I also thought as well, it was very badly written. Like the dialogue was yeah. really cheesy. <laughs> very cheesy. Really cheesy. And and I think, and I don't know if I'm wrong here because I've been thinking about this, but I, I felt like they used those same stereotypes of soldiers that we've seen multiple times in multiple war films. Yeah. Did nobody go to war only and these are the stereotypes that I saw in it. The kind of crazy redneck who you think, oh, he's a bit unhinged. You've got your nerdy guy who really kind of get the feeling he shouldn't really be there. And your general big beefy guy from Brooklyn. You know, just, just general, just general man's man. Like, why, why do we have no other characters? I think that came from originally, without going off into making this a film podcast, I think it came from originally in the fact that because of enlistment, World War One and World War Two put lots of different types of people together. And so I think initially in those early war films, you got those kind of stereotypes because actually that was the reality of it. You would have someone from a farm in Arkansas working with a city Brooklyn boy, working with a well-educated right, that makes LA sense. person. So you'd have that mix. The problem is these people have been lazy with it and they've looked at Saving Private Ryan and gone, right, we'll have those same characters. <laughs> and that's it, basically. That's what, that's what you've got. And you know what? The scares weren't bad in the film. No, they, they were predictable. And I, I jumped, I'm sure I did. <laughs> you, you did jump. You know, you could predict the jump scares. And there was there was elements of it before we realised what was happening that it was it was confusing. And there was like, 
occult references mm. and you were like oh weird shit has happened and then it just no just a big i'm do you know what i'm i'm actually i don't really know how i'm gonna score this so i'm gonna what what would you score it out of five one a one i think that first part was good before it got really messy i liked it interesting i yeah mm, i'm i don't know i feel like i'm gonna give it a two but only because i quite like billy zane <laughs> he was barely in it so that's a strong two for billy zane was, there. he was in it in the last like <laughs> 10 minutes and briefly in the first five minutes which was very random which brings us to our story this week oh i can't even imagine where this is going based off that film has it got any link no link whatsoever okay, to the film. <laughs> except maybe the random madness of it so every so often people send me story suggestions right and they go hey have you seen this case that happened wherever and I've had this particular story in my list of potential stories for literally about a year now. And I always looked at it and went, oh yeah, I need to look that one up and see what it's about. And I happened to look it up this week. You're glad you did? No, I don't know if I am really, to be honest, because it's taken hours to write this. I mean, hours to write this episode to try and sift through everything that happened. So this episode is based on a Channel 4 dramatization of this story which came out in 2018, which is genuinely very scary. Like, I jumped quite a lot when I was watching it. It had good... I didn't see it, I didn't hear it, but it had good, quite loud dynamics because kept, I kept hearing the loud bits. Obviously, as always, the link will be in the show notes for the, the documentary. It's also based on a book um, by a guy whose name I can't remember, but the book is called Testimony, and it's about this particular case. And it's also based on numerous news reports from the time of this case. I also probably should caveat before we start this story that if you have heard some audio disturbances, my our neighbours have decided to turn their house into a building site randomly, just at just they haven't done any other building work ever, and um, now they've now they're sawing everything apart in the house. So have you got your pen and paper ready? I have, yeah, because I was instructed to bring one today. It was necessary. South Wales boasts some of the most beautiful scenery in all of the United Kingdom. The Brecon Beacons National Park is a haven for those seeking an isolated solace. It is a place of beautiful fields, animals roaming the hillsides and looming mountains silhouetted against the sky. The weather can be unpredictable and the winters often bring snow and storms. The area is steeped in dark lore and to this day there is a belief that it is home to ancient spirits, summoned thousands of years ago by Celtic warriors. Rumours of witches' covens abound, and the veil between our world and the unseen world seems to be thinner here. Nature spirits protect the area, and are respected, and accepted, by some of the local people. In the middle of the Brecon Beacons, at the foot of a mountain sits a farm. Heol Fanog, otherwise known as the Hellfire Farm. In the late 80s, Liz and Bill believed that they had found their little slice of heaven. They had both had turbulent pasts, but had found a kindred spirit in each other. Bill had been married and had a son, Lawrence. His wife had had a painfully public affair and eventually left him and Lawrence. Liz had been battling severe anorexia for years and was working in a holistic medicine shop when she met Bill. They instantly clicked and fell madly in love, 
and wanted to find somewhere to live that was remote and isolated and let them escape from their pasts. Heolfanog was unusually cheap for the area and the time and it offered a studio space for Bill to further his career as an artist. It was perfect. Liz and Bill both spoke about a feeling as though they had entered a force field when they stepped across the threshold of Heolfanog as though it had its own energy and was welcoming them in and they really took to country life with gusto. They got a pig, which they called Lucinda Ragworth Rigland, who became more like a family dog than a pig and would park herself indoors in front of the fire. They got some goats to keep the grass down in the garden, but soon realised that goats are not actually full grazing animals, but they didn't have the heart to get rid of them. Liz was pregnant and set about readying the house for the eventual arrival of their son Ben, and Bill spent his time making art to order in his new studio. He was proving to be a much sought after and successful artist, and there was no shortage of work. For the first time in a long time, both Bill and Liz felt as though they had truly left the past behind them, and they were truly thriving. In hindsight, the first odd event seemed so insignificant at the time, just a funny coincidence, that they probably wouldn't have even remembered if they had not made a joke of it. Bill was rummaging in the random drawer in the kitchen. You know the one that's full of old odds and ends. He was looking for an invoice that he needed to check over when he came across the receipt for the dinner that they had had the night before moving into the house. The total was £6.66. He barely noticed until he then picked up the receipt for their first grocery shop for the new cottage. £66.60. He chuckled. Hey Liz, come and see this. She looked and reminded him of the incident on the road on the way there. They had nearly been rammed off the road by a black Volvo with the registration plate 666. They both laughed it off and made jokes about being cursed and it be the mark of the beast. Neither were particularly religious and they were so happy living in this idyllic life that nothing could make them feel ill at ease. The arrival of the new baby into the house heralded a new nighttime routine. Ben was a placid baby, despite having been sick when he was born, and Liz was naturally besotted by him. Late one night, Bill went downstairs to use the toilet. He had left Liz in their bedroom feeding the baby, and Lawrence was long in bed. He looked bleary-eyed into the mirror, washing his hands. When he felt the atmosphere in the house change. It was like the air had been sucked out of it. He found himself holding his breath. And then he heard it. Footsteps thundered above him and someone big and heavy seemed to sprint down the landing and stop outside the room where he had left Liz. He hopped back upstairs ready to scold Lawrence. When he saw nothing... He poked his head into Lawrence's room and he was breathing deep and calm like someone fast asleep. A sinking feeling began to grow in his stomach and he burst into the bedroom to see Liz quietly motioning at him to keep the noise down as the baby was asleep. What happened? He asked her in a tense whisper. Why were you running? She looked at him confused. She hadn't heard a thing. 
There are lots of things that can account for nighttime sounds, especially when there's a new baby in the mix. So Liz and Bill simply didn't discuss the incident again until much later. In fact, as their life rolled on, he probably forgot about it. But something had changed in the house. There seemed to be an impenetrable darkness that infected the rooms and no amount of light seemed to lift it. Liz threw open the curtains, lit candles and incense to try and dispel the shadows, but something had definitely changed. Bill stood in the kitchen one afternoon, rifling through their post, when he opened a letter and went deathly pale. It was an electricity bill for £750. In the late 80s, a £750 electricity bill would be more fitting for a factory than a small farmhouse. So obviously Bill contested it. There was no way he would or even could pay a bill this huge. It was ridiculous. It's important to note at this point that the electricity bill is and continues to be one of the most compelling parts of this story for a variety of reasons that will come to later. The house was investigated countless times and by countless professionals. Bill and his solicitor worked out that even if every appliance and light in the household was on permanently, there would be no way of the bill costing that much. Each appliance and power source in the house was checked independently and none were faulty. Each appliance and power source was also checked by Swalek, the electricity board for Wales, but none were faulty. There was no logical or scientific explanation to be found for the amount of electricity that was somehow being used on the farm. Bill and Liz and an independent electrician reported turning all of the electrical supply to the house off and still watching the numbers on the meter whiz around as though huge amounts of energy were being used. And it wasn't the only electrical anomaly to occur. Liz reported seeing bizarre lights that would shoot around the barn, almost like a laser show. Blue and white orbs would zoom around the farmhouse and they began to suspect that the electrical surges that were plaguing the farm were something more than just faulty electrics. As the house became dark and dour and they battled the electrical companies, their luck seemed to evaporate. Almost overnight, Bill went from being a sought-after and respected artist to a veritable failure. Every single commission he had fell through and no one was interested in buying his paintings. Their car failed inexplicably, and so did the next car, and the next car. But life had to continue as normal for the sake of the children. The atmosphere in the house seemed to intensify as though it was building up to something. Liz was feeding the baby in her bedroom when she heard a deafening crash. The door to the nursery at the far end of the corridor had slammed shut, so hard that dust had fallen from the ceiling. There was a brief pause, and then the next door, Lawrence's room, slammed shut with ferocious force, and then finally the door to her room slammed shut with such a crash that jewellery had fallen from her dresser, and Ben began to wail in fright. She looked at the jewellery on the floor, and then at the door in shock and had a dawning realisation. The door hadn't slammed shut because it was already shut. In fact, the door hadn't moved at all 
The sheer bizarre unreality of it hit her like a ton of bricks and she feared that she was losing her mind. That night away from the ears of their children Bill and Liz sat at the kitchen table and discussed the earlier events. They both heard the footsteps at the same time. Bill had been joking about them having a ghost when slow shuffling steps began above them. Liz stared at Bill as his smile froze and then faltered on his face. They listened in horror as the footsteps shuffled down the corridor and then stopped at the top of the stairs. And then the unmistakable sound of a footstep on the top step. A pause. A shuffle onto the second step. A pause. The dawning horror consumed them both. It was coming down the stairs. Third step. Pause. Fourth step. Pause. They sat frozen in horror staring out the kitchen door and into the hallway. Fifth step. Pause. Sixth step. The tension was palpable. They knew that whatever was in the house was just out of sight at the bottom of the stairs around the corner. Bill eventually plucked up the courage to investigate and found nothing, of course. Whatever it was, it wasn't ready to show itself yet. It was shortly after this that they began to notice the smells. Bill had been working in the studio and went to the kitchen to have a break when he was met with the unmistakable stench of sulphur. Naturally, he thought there was a problem with the sewage system, so he called in a local tradesman. But by the time he arrived, the smell had gone and there was no sign of any issues. The smell would appear and disappear throughout the house, and so too would the sweet smell of perfume that didn't belong to anyone in the house. The temperature would range from boiling hot to below freezing instantaneously in various parts of the house and again checks showed no problems with the heating or the plumbing in the house. The heat was sometimes so intense in certain parts of the house that it would make them sweat profusely and have to leave the house to cool down. All in all, the situation seemed to be getting more and more bizarre. And Bill decided it was time to start asking some questions. The neighbours were decent people. And when Bill met them one day while out for a walk, he couldn't help but spill about the strange goings-on in the house. His neighbour looked at him, an older man, and simply shrugged and said, There's no luck to be had there. He went on to tell Bill a story about the land. Many years before, a manor house had stood on the land. Bill knew this to be true, as the ruins were still visible. What Bill didn't know was that as the manor house had crumbled away over time, local farmers had taken stone for building and renovating their own houses. This isn't out of the ordinary in rural communities. But what was unusual were the gravestones. Manor houses traditionally had their own grave sites, and generations of the family would be buried on their own land. It was widely believed that gravestones were excavated, broken down and used in the building of the farmhouse at Hale Fanog. It would be an easy leap to assume that the house was being haunted by the ghosts of the disturbed grave occupants, 
but unfortunately for Bill and Liz, it just wasn't that simple. Life in a haunted house takes on a certain type of routine. They got used to the car troubles. They were locked in a seemingly eternal battle with the electrical company as the bills kept rolling in. The smells of sulphur and sweet perfume came and went and they became accustomed to spots in the house feeling like a raging inferno and conversely other spots being below freezing. But the worst thing for Liz was the eternal feeling of being watched. That was the real nightmare for her. She would be in the kitchen and would feel the tingling, prickling sensation that someone was watching her every move. The hairs on her arms would stand on end and she found the anticipation unbearable. She felt as though whatever was in their home was just waiting to strike at any second. But she was also crippled by the fear that what was happening to them wasn't paranormal at all. That her and Bill were suffering from some sort of shared psychosis. And she didn't know which frightened her more. One day Liz had taken Ben out for a walk. It was a blustery, fresh day. And it was when she was returning and walking back towards the house that she saw it. She stopped in her tracks and stared up at the nursery window. And staring right back at her was a face. Her heart thudded in her chest as an old woman looked at her from the window. She could see every wrinkle on her face and this woman was watching her from inside the house. Soon after she saw the old woman, they began to have trouble with the plumbing in the house. The tiles in the bathroom would rise up as though something was attempting to burst out from underneath the floor. They obviously called out a plumber to have a look. And like all of the other issues in the house, there was no explanation. But the plumber told them that he wasn't surprised. The previous occupant, Mrs Holborn, had had all kinds of trouble here since her mother had died. Unexplained plumbing issues and every time the plumber visited with his apprentice, the apprentice always came away feeling as though they had been watched the entire time. The other thing that bothered him was that he knew the builder that had worked on the renovation of the property. And this builder had told the plumber that he had been really spooked when he found the remnants of big black gravestones built into the walls. It wasn't long after this, one day Liz entered the nursery to check on Ben during one of his daily naps. And there, sat in a chair next to Ben's cot, was an old woman watching him sleep. It was the same old woman that Liz had seen watching her from the nursery. Liz slumped against the door in shock and in the blink of an eye the woman was gone. Now while the apparition of the woman was disturbing, Liz wasn't frightened of her as such. She was shocked by her sudden appearance of course, but she instinctively knew that this woman was not responsible for the pounding footsteps, the sulfuric smell or the temperature changes. And most importantly, she knew that this woman was not responsible for the sense of dread that was growing in the house. Something was also happening in the land around Heolfenog. Every single animal that Liz and Bill owned systematically died one 
by one. But so did the animals of local farmers. Lambs were being born with serious deformities at an alarming rate. So much so that the local vet was baffled as to how and why this was happening. Bill's work continued to decline and the family were now living in serious debt. They breathed a sigh of relief when a neighbouring family commissioned Bill to do a painting of their prized horse. Bill readily agreed and set to work on it. He wandered the wilderness until he eventually found the perfect background for the painting. Beautiful, picturesque and serene. He was really proud of his work, but was unable to get one of the back legs right in the painting. No matter what he did, or how many times he painted, erased and repainted, it always seemed to look slightly deformed or injured. Annoyed and frustrated, but still pleased with the overall outcome, he accepted defeat and presented the picture to the family who were delighted with it. They paid Bill and hung the picture in their house. But not long afterwards, Bill received a phone call. It was his neighbour. The horse had died. Bill commiserated with her. And there was a long pause on the other end of the phone. Yes, the horse had died. But it had died from a mysterious ailment that had left its back leg deformed and injured. When they found it, its leg was misshapen and twisted. And because of the sheer size of the animal, they had no choice but to bury it where it fell. There was another pause. The horse had died in the exact spot that Bill had chosen for the backdrop of the painting. He had chosen the backdrop at random. But the horse died in the exact position it had stood in that painting. The neighbours burnt it. It was around this time that both Liz and Bill began to see something else in the house. They would regularly see a seven-foot, shadowy figure that would move around the perimeter of their property, often slipping in and out between the trees. Both regularly saw the shadowy figure out of their peripheral vision move through the house. They knew that whatever this was, it was not connected to the old woman, and that whatever it was felt well and truly evil. You're probably wondering at this point why in the world they didn't seek any help. The truth is that this story is littered with priests and mediums and spiritualists, plumbers, builders, electricians, dowsers and everyone in between. While Liz and Bill believed that everyone who arrived at the house had good intentions, they found that more often than not they weren't very helpful in the end. They were told numerous times that they had something demonic in the house. Numerous exorcisms were performed at various points and by different people. One group of people claimed that Bill was cursed, a fear which actually deeply impacted him as it led him to believe that the suffering being inflicted on his family was his fault. One pair of spiritualists went through the possessions of the family and removed and burnt everything that they believed could be some sort of conduit for evil. This included books and many of Bill's paintings. Each time someone arrived, they would tell a story so convincing that the family would be filled with hope that this time, whatever was destroying their lives would be gone. 
and each time there would be quiet for a few days until they would feel that familiar prickling sensation on the back of their necks. After one of these sessions in particular, the house had become quiet and Liz believed that everything was back to normal. At this time, Liz and Bill were sleeping in separate beds because he found he worked best late at night and didn't want to disturb her by coming into bed late. It didn't really make much difference to her because they'd gotten a new cat and it was driving her mad and keeping her awake every night. It would crawl under the bed and growl at nothing until she would eventually fall asleep and forget about it. One night she walked the cat under the bed again. But this time it wasn't just growling, it was snorting and snarling under the bed. And that was it. She was sick of this and threw her pillow under the bed to frighten the cat. But it didn't stop. She groaned and swung her legs out of bed to turn the light on and go and fish the cat out from under the bed. But she found nothing because the cat wasn't in the room and the grunting sound continued. She stood in the middle of the room feeling her heart start to hammer when she realised that the sound wasn't actually in the room at all. It was outside the window. Her second story window. She took a step towards it and the sound stopped briefly as though whatever it was was watching her move towards it. Eventually she threw open the curtains to nothing, only blackness. Every time they got that sensation, that hot prickling on the back of their neck, they knew that this thing was close by. As I said, they had glimpsed it many times, a huge shadowy figure that moved in their peripheral vision. Bill was in the kitchen when he got that familiar hot, prickly sensation and the hairs on the back of his neck stood on end. He knew that he shouldn't look, because no good had come of that before. He stared straight ahead and willed himself not to turn around, feeling the air turn heavy around him. He was struggling to breathe, and he gripped the counter until his knuckles turned white. He knew he had to run. He could feel it. He turned around and that was the first time he properly saw it. The thing that had been making their lives a misery. The embodiment of evil. This time it wasn't a fleeting glance. This seven foot thing was in the kitchen. It was the shadowy figure of a man standing as still as a statue. It had the hooked beak of a bird and though it didn't move, Bill knew that this thing was alive. He ran from the kitchen, and not knowing what else to do, he prayed. And a man named Eddie Burke was to be the answer to their prayers. Eddie Burke wasn't a religious man, but he had worked on some high-profile haunting cases, and believed he had a gift to help relieve issues in houses. He agreed to help Liz and Bill out, and was accompanied to the house by none other than Maurice Gross, who famously investigated the Enfield haunting case. Eddie explored the house, and then told the couple everything they needed to know. In their house was an old woman, who was benevolent. There was also the ghost of a murder victim, and the murderer, 
and this turned out to be historically accurate. A farmhand had been bludgeoned to death with an axe. But there was something else there, which other people had mistaken for demonic. It was something ancient, a creature that had been summoned thousands of years before in an ancient Celtic ritual that was used to strike terror into enemies. This ancient being was not of Christian origin, so exorcisms were never going to work on it. Eddie set about ridding the house of the presences that were trapped there. And whatever he did, it worked. The electricity meter stopped spinning wildly, and within a couple of weeks their electricity usage was completely normal. The footsteps and the apparition stopped, and to this day there is no explanation as to what electrical anomaly was taking place on the farm. They only saw the bird-headed creature once more, standing atop a hill watching the farmhouse. But there's one more thing that makes this story really strange. When Liz saw the lights in the barn, it wasn't actually the first time she'd seen those lights. Just before they moved to Hayol Fanog, Liz, Bill and Lawrence had gone to Egypt on holidays to fulfil a dream of visiting the pyramids. They visited the Pyramid of Sheops and got up at the crack of dawn to be able to beat the rush to explore the heart of the tunnels. Liz was the first to reach the centre and was taking it all in in the dark chamber when she saw blue and white lights, almost like lasers dancing around the walls. No matter what she did, she couldn't figure out the source of the lights. When Lawrence and Bill eventually caught up to her, they didn't see the lights But Lawrence turned to her, looking pale and frightened, and whispered, Can you feel that? They were apparently simultaneously gripped with a sense of absolute terror, and all scrambled down the corridor to try and get out. Although when they did get out, none of them could explain why they were so frightened or what happened to them. During the haunting of Hayol Fanog, Liz and Bill fled to her mother's house for a couple of weeks to get a break. And during this time, they experienced mysterious pools of water and footsteps throughout the house. Except they also found something else in the house. One day, Liz's mother arrived home to find a pendant in the middle of the floor. She had never seen it before and picked it up, assuming it was Liz's. It wasn't. And no one could ever figure out whose it was or where it came from. Except that it was very clearly incredibly old and was covered in Egyptian symbols. When the entity finally made itself known to the couple, both Eddie and Bill described it as looking like Horus, the Egyptian bird god. Admittedly, a lot has gone on in this story, but there are some undeniable facts. The electrical company couldn't figure out the electrical anomalies, and many tradespeople reported strange things happening while they worked in the house. A dog warden who Bill and Liz called to the house as their dog was behaving strangely almost didn't go because she was so frightened to go to that house. She had been friends with the previous occupant and had experienced the pounding footsteps in the house when she house sat for her friend. Odd animal deaths and animal behaviours were reported on the land. 
Three dowsers arrived on the land to tell Bill and Liz that their property was on an anomalous crisscross of ley lines, which had created a black stream of negative energy. You can believe what you want about this story, but I feel like something happened there. And the last thing you'll probably notice is that at the beginning of this story, I referred to Bill's son Lawrence from his first marriage. And I promptly never really mentioned him again. He actually has a much bigger part of the story than I made it seem. Bill and Liz, according to the book Testimony, believed that Lawrence was possessed and eventually sent him to live in a boarding house in the nearest town on the advice of an exorcist. He was angry, aggressive, painted his room red and obsessed over horror films watching them late into the night. But he remained on track in school and teachers saw no change in his behaviour. It's important to note that the book doesn't really make this connection, but Lawrence's change in behaviour comes after a period of great turmoil in his life. His mum and dad had split up after his mum had had an affair with another man, and his dad quickly moved on to a relationship with a younger woman who subsequently fell pregnant. And while Bill and Liz might have been shocked by Lawrence's behaviour and believed that something had possessed him, his behaviour wasn't beyond the realms of what is normal teenage rebellion, combined with a reaction to trauma. For that reason, I chose not to explore that part of the story in this episode. But what about the other children? In the end, Liz and Bill had three children in that house, Ben, Rebecca and eventually Thomas. In an interview with Rebecca, she reported that at the time she didn't notice anything strange about the house. Until during a conversation with her siblings and her mother years later, she asked, Mum, who was the old woman who used to watch us in the nursery? Oh, don't end it on that. That's terrifying. I thought you were going to have some big reveal about the other children, though, because you're like, what about the other children? I was like, what other children? What's going on? <laughs> the other ghost children. I can't handle that. Why have I never heard it before? Isn't it the wildest story you've ever heard? It's crazy. Are you going to do your usual and just say, and it all turns out it was... No, I have nothing to tell you. Oh, man. I will I will tell you a little bit. So... I think you're right about Lawrence, by the way. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so I, I kind of thought, you know, they, they, they were quite shocked by his behaviour. But I also think, I've worked with lots of families who parents refuse to see, the, the, to acknowledge, or they don't want to acknowledge that their behaviour might actually cause some upset in their children. So it, you know, and then this exorcist came in and said to them, oh, it's him, he's possessed, he's causing all these problems in the house, he needs to leave. And they were really desperate at the time and probably didn't want to admit that actually he was probably just responding to the fact that he's seen adults having pretty chaotic times. So that's why I didn't include it in the story. This is very clearly ancient, the work of ancient Egyptians. We've never had ancient Egyptians before. Because Wales is very close to Salisbury, which is where um, Stonehenge is. And we know that Stonehenge was built by Egyptians. Do we? On furlough. Oh, they were on furlough, were yeah. they? I see. Yeah, they were on furlough from the temple, so they knocked something up there, and they obviously just jumped over the river to Wales. And um, yeah, that really easy journey that it would have been at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you know, on a more serious note, <laughs> it's almost that first people elemental thing again, isn't it? Yeah. Because who's to say that Horus isn't a real entity, ancient entity and actually what the Egyptians call Horus isn't something else in Celtic tradition who knows potentially and, and something else again in Native American and something else again in Aborigine 
I think there's a, there's a lot to be said for recognising that there were ancient people that lived, like ancient Celtic tribes that lived on that land, which is 100% yeah. true. And they probably did do rituals to their various deities that they believed in, which were most more often than not, they were nature spirits. And that's something that's kind of a little bit inescapable. And it kind of makes sense that all of the Christian people that came in, so they had like spiritualists, they had Baptists, they had Methodists, they had Catholics, all sorts of people came into the house and they all said it's a demon and then tried to exercise it in a traditional Christian way. Well, how is that, how is that ever going to work? This thing is pre-Christian. Yeah. Like this thing is some sort of fucking pre-Christian Elemental. statue man, which I... Pre-Christian statue man, isn't it? Yeah, because that's how he described him. He described him in the book as being like half man, half statue with a bird head. Loved it. I thought statue man was like a new um, cryptid that I didn't know about. (laughs) Shadow man, move over. It's time for statue man. (laughs) He just stands there really annoyingly. (laughs) I need to tell you a little bit as well about Bill's life. Because Bill sounds like a fucking character. So he was really wild and carefree and then he, I think he joined the Peace Corps and then or he, I think maybe he joined the Navy that's a that's way more British isn't it to join the Navy yeah. than the Peace Corps yeah. he joined the Navy and then realised it wasn't for him so he like he ran away went and lived with a tribe in the middle of a jungle because that was more preferable decided oh I really kind of like this lifestyle actually and then he went to Australia and he lived with um, Aboriginal people with Australia accidentally got married to an Aboriginal girl decided that wasn't for him and then left he also briefly mentioned you know when they said to him well you're cursed he was like oh this is all the time i spent with i think the guy's name was alex saunders who was like the head of the witches in england and the the people were like sorry what all the time what do you mean and he was like oh well he promised me that if i became a witch i'd be a really successful artist and i started the ritual then i got a bit freaked out so i didn't i didn't finish it so do you think that's what it is (laughs) and every time someone new came into the house there seems to be this new revelation of what this man bill had done in his past so he's potentially carrying around a hell of a lot of bad energy anyway so it might have actually nothing to do with this elemental spirit at all it's just bill it's just Bill doing all these these things like with ancient tribes of people yeah. and they're going, well, fuck you, Bill. Yeah. That's another curse. <laughs> Notch that one up. Can we talk about the painting? Because that terrified me. I think that probably is the scariest part of this story. Because a horse died. I'm not with that. Anybody that's been that's watching, awful. anybody that's watched my Last of Us 2 streams knows that I can't handle horses dying. <laughs> no, it's, it's awful. It's really sad, but also terrifying. Isn't it terrifying? And I was just like... I'm pretty sure I, you weren't looking at me at the time, but my face was just like, what, 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 no. And I knew it was coming. I knew when you said that the horse had died somewhere, I was like, it's going to be in the painting. It's going to be, oh my gosh, it's the place in the painting. I've got a little confession to make. I missed you mentioning Lawrence early on in the uh, story, but I, re- I caught the name of the pig, but wrote it down as L-R-R. So when you were talking about Lawrence running around upstairs, I thought it was the pig and I was like... Why have they got the pig inside upstairs in the house? Well, they did, apparently. They oh, okay. had the pig like a dog. Lucinda Ragworth yeah, Rigland yeah. was the was the pig's name. Yeah. Who, who also died, Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. Because it's just like he was having a really rough patch, like not getting any commissions, and then he got one, and it was like a cursed painting. They The family burnt the painting. Oh, yeah. they and the, Oh, um, no, no, no. So in the book, there's um, testimony from... Like Bill, Liz, and also all of their neighbours and stuff. So after that bit, the the woman who he sold the painting to, 
um, did a little interview with the guy who wrote the book and she was like, yeah, I burnt the painting. She was horrified by what happened. Horrified. And she burnt the painting. I mean, I probably would do the same thing, to be honest. I'd be fucking livid as well. I'd be asking for my money back. Yeah, but it was just the fact that he struggled with the bat leg and then it was the bat leg that was the one that ended up to it dying and then Horrific. it died on the spot. They killed it on the spot and buried it there. And then, oh, it's just too much there. The electricity is really interesting. Yeah, so that's the bit about this story that I really actually quite like because it's it's very tangible. Now, they weren't, I think it's really important as well. They weren't the only people in the family to have these experiences. So, like, both of their mothers, when they visited the house, like, heard the footsteps, um, uh, like, saw strange things out of the corner of their eyes. Like, they weren't the only people to experience it. And I think that's kind of important because otherwise you're just taking their story at face value. Absolutely. But the electricity is fascinating. Mm. Because that was, I mean, in the book, the electricity company give their testimony as well. And a lawyer gives his testimony. And the lawyer is like, this is fucking big business. Just trying to take the little man down. He didn't care about any of the paranormal yeah. stuff. He's just like, I'm a very good lawyer. I'll fight your case. It's almost like an advertisement for him. But the electrical company were like, yeah, it is an anomaly. We've never seen anything like it. But he still has to pay that fucking money. Yeah, that's disgraceful. Yep. But there you go. That's what their, mm. That's what their take on it was. Was the idea to write a book to pay the electricity bill? <laughs> they did, the family didn't write the book. Oh, okay. It's a journalist who wrote oh, the book. Right, okay. Yeah. Mm. So, what are your questions about this story? I mean, I just want to—I want to talk to Bob, really. I, most of my questions you can't answer. I need to know more about his life before. Who's he Bob was... or Bill? Bill. Yeah, he's sorry, dead. Bob is the. Oh, is he? Yeah, oh, he's sad. since passed away. Relatively recently, he passed away, but sad. he has since passed away. I mean, it's a great story. Hollywood needs to go on this. I think. I would recommend if you've enjoyed that story absolutely watch the um dramatization it's a channel four one and it's called um true terrors i think i'll leave the link in the in the show notes of this episode but it's called true terrors i think episode one hellfire farm or whatever and it's really good to watch like and then it the is series good. went bust after that because everything after that point was really dull <laughs> it's just and in the in in the episode the dramatization they leave out loads of it as well because there is such an amount to this story that you just can't even get into it yeah like there's so much going on. I've just for context, I've got two sides and a bit for notes, which is about seventy five percent more than I normally write per there's episode. A lot so, going on, yeah. Yeah, people even started to draw a monkey inexplicably. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Very nice. I also had to look up during this episode what ley lines were, because we talk about them all the time. But I realised that I had absolutely no idea what they meant. Do you want to explain them to us? Well, I didn't know, and then it's not actually a real thing, like scientifically. No, but a lot of the paranormal is not. Yeah, but I didn't realise. See, I very naively didn't realise that ley lines were a paranormal thing. I thought they were like oh, right. a scientific <laughs> thing. And I was like, oh, wait a second. They're not. So this guy in the 20th century noticed that like buildings and monuments built by ancient people all lined up mm. right on a map. And so ley lines are apparently these lines of energy that go all over the globe that link together. And then all these dowsers kept coming to these people. Like randomly they would come to this to um Liz and Bill's house and be like hey I feel like you need to know this but your house is on a load of ley lines and they'd be like oh my god we fucking know okay like, you oh, are th- really and what does that cause like that seven foot shadow figure behind me see that guy <laughs> yeah yeah ley lines is it we fucking know come come out and I'll show you my electrical bill my bill I'll show you it um yeah so they they do they talk about this thing called um energy spa- black streams which are like bad energy streams caused by like crazy day lines or something blew my mind interesting it's a great story it's a great story i don't even know really what to say at this point i just can't go over the horse painting 
it shook me a little bit that is horrific and they believed that so the the old woman was obviously the mother of the previous occupant and anytime they called the previous occupant she was like i don't know what you're talking about no no idea no that never experienced anything but other people who knew the previous occupant were like oh no weird shit happened in that house all the time yeah so the plumber told a story about how the she got a call or she called him and said oh can you come my radiators have all fallen off the wall and he was like weird but okay and he went and put them back on again and then the next day she'd call him back and be like my radiators have all fallen off the wall so she went back again now i was gonna put that into the story and then i was like that also could be a lonely woman who doesn't have very much family who wants I mean, somebody to come around it could be but that is a hell of a lot of effort to yeah, take all your radiators off the wall just to get someone to come around like yeah just faint a heart attack and call the police or something yeah so weird <laughs> things would happen and and like the dog warden heard those banging footsteps like those really thundering footsteps and this guy eddie burke um believed that so there was the older woman who was the mother of the previous occupant and then there was um the murder victim who was bludgeoned with an axe in the back of the head and that absolutely happened there is historical records for that and the murderer also so do you think a lot of that activity was the ghost of the murdered being chased by the ghost of the murderer potentially yeah just chased like scooby-doo style <laughs> yeah. around and around the house and the old woman involved too somehow and she just sits there rocking yeah on the chair i mean she can also fuck right off oh I, well i don't know i was a bit torn by this because i was at first when you said that about liz seeing her in the window of the nursery and then sitting with her sitting in the nursery i was like oh that's creepy but then i was like she didn't really do anything she just kind of sits there I mean, if she's going to do like some horror movie stuff, like running up and screaming in my face or something like that. No, there was none of that with her. She's just, that's how it used to be a house. Just the story out. did get even more bonkers. Right. So after this guy, Eddie, did like his cleansing thing with the house. We need to come back to Eddie later, remind me. Yeah, what a lad. I'll tell you about him. I'm, we might have to do a whole episode on him because he was fascinating. Um, He did this cleansing ritual, whatever he did on the house, and he got rid of the this elemental ancient spirit but he also said to them, you need to prepare yourselves because the activity in your house is going to really increase for the next couple of weeks because your house is now a beacon for lost souls. So I've passed over, you know, the woman and blah, 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 but other souls are going to come through. So it ended up being like some sort of sixth sense shit where like these souls allegedly would just walk through the house into the garden regularly. So they'd walk out into the corridor and there'd be a random man walking through the corridor and out into the garden and they'd be like oh well there's another one that's a another soul passing over but i also didn't include that because it was too wild even for me i thought what you were going to say is that the activity was going to increase because all the other ghosts were really scared of the horror thing and so they were just hiding in the corner waiting for him to go and then when he went they were like ah now we can run around all we like (laughs) um two things i want to talk about briefly numero uno I do not like the thought of gravestones being used in buildings. However, the more I thought about it, there's probably gravestones being used in everything. Yeah, it's. I don't think it's not that. It's just not that big of a deal, really, is it? No, but I'm not. I don't, I don't think like you know, as much as possible. I think if you're aware that it's a resting place, you should leave it as is. I think um, they thought that it was their easy answer. You know, there's gravestones in the building. Oh, okay, that's that's what the problem is. But it actually wasn't. Yeah. That's no, that it was just, just Horace from Egypt. Yeah. On furlough. <laughs> on his holidays. <laughs> We've asked the question before, do ghosts go on holidays? Yes, they fucking do. Yes, they do. 
The other thing I've got to say is, uh, what, what's Morris Gross doing knocking around here? <laughs> Little right? cameo appearance. <laughs> when I saw his name, I was like, get out. I was just thinking, as you were saying that, I actually wrote it down. I wondered if this is the reason that this story doesn't have as much, isn't as well known as everybody else because he's attached to it and everybody's like, mm. I don't think so because he's not mentioned in any of the newspaper articles. He wasn't mentioned, no, nothing about it was mentioned in the documentary or in the, the dramatization. He's only got, it literally just says his name in the book. It says, and Eddie Burke was accompanied by um, Maurice Gross and somebody else. I wonder if that was to give Eddie a bit of credence. Well, he apparently was involved in this really high profile case that we need to look into. That was Who, like, Eddie that, yeah, that was like governmental. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, in London. So we need. I need to have a look into it and see, can I find the story? Is Eddie Burke still alive? Oh, I don't know. What kind of knowledge, insane knowledge must you have to be able to go in and go, mm, actually... This isn't demons. This is a, an ancient elemental Celtic thing that they summoned in battle. I mean, it's very cool skill to have, though. I mean, isn't it? that's either that guy is insanely intelligent and has got lots and lots of knowledge, or is the world's grades a BSer. But, Either way, it worked for the family. Yeah, yep. You know whether whether he was psychic or whether he was just a bullshitter and believed his own bullshit. It worked for the family, I, and the most important thing, their elect- electricity went down. I mean that is the most important thing. I I part of me wonders if Eddie got it right about what it was, but didn't get the reason right, in that it wasn't summoned by Celtic people, but it was actually Bill in another one of his other lives where he was just knocking about in ancient Egypt and you annoyed someone else, and so they yeah. sent, sent just constantly annoying people. <laughs> so if you enjoyed this week's episode. You can send your own story to reallifeghoststoriespodcast.gmail.com. You can find everything you need to know about us on our website, reallifeghoststories.com. You can support us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash reallifeghoststories, where for $5 or $2 a month, you get heaps of extra content. I would like to say as well, if there are any factual inaccuracies. No, I didn't. I didn't. Genuinely didn't make it up. The link to the book, the dramatization and all the news articles are in the description of this episode. And on that note, we shall see you next week. Bye.